Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, John, you know, we're marching into summer here, and it's coming, buddy. It's going to be hot next week. It is going to be smoking <laughs> next like week. 99 degrees. 99 degrees, a couple days. That, yeah. It's been nice weather. Yeah, yeah, it's it's gonna be getting hot, but uh, but hey, you know, I mean, we got we got the PGA Championship yeah. this, this week in Kiwa. I, I was disappointed on the first day that it opened up for tickets. I I was on it. I know you were as well. I was too. I everything was sold out. I'm I like, couldn't believe that. That could it be was, sold out on the the like early the first day, but you know, I don't know. I mean, I, it was the pandemic, so when back last summer, whenever they offered them, so I yeah. guess everybody was home sitting on go. You yeah, know, I guess you I know, know, anxious to go somewhere, but it was a little frustrating. We couldn't get tickets for that. Yeah. But, Maybe we can grab one the day of or something. Maybe. You know? Last well, time, well, me and Josh got one the day of on went down there. Ticketmaster or something, and I just drove down there for the day, and it was awesome. Yeah. Well, so, at a minimum, we can watch it. There right? you go. That's there you go. Thing. But anyway, that'll be fun. But yes, it is going to be hot, and it's going to start like Sunday, and it's just going to keep on. <laughs> mm-hmm. With no know, rain. With no rain here for the next week. But then we get back to cooler weather, so... It'll be nice, but uh, but speaking of hot, hey, we got some hot topics here. We're going to talk about. Today. We we do. This is a great topic, and um, it's it's something that you really don't hear about very much, Steve. But um, this is from Morningstar, and it's uh, the question is is how many stocks actually beat the index? And um, yeah, I mean uh, that we we come across this, and we've seen it in the past, but uh, it'll surprise you what the answer is. It's a very small number. And it's mm-hmm. why people like us tell folks not to invest in individual stocks because it is it's it's risky. I mean, you start looking at mutual funds, um, and we'll go into the details here. But how many stocks beat the index? It's a small number. Yeah, this is a real recent study. We've talked about studies before. You know, go back twenty five years, and and but this one's over the last decade, and I thought it was very interesting. So you definitely want to tune in for that. And then we're going to talk about um, switching states to save income taxes. Mm. Yeah. You know, people have people actually do that. And, um, you know, a lot of people retire from like up north or even here down to Florida or someplace that has no income tax. So is that a viable alternative? Is it something you have to consider? Um, you know, it, it's an interesting topic. So we're going to dig question, into that. Yeah. Good, good article here out of Bottom Line Personal. So we'll dig into that. Um, by the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 25 years experience in financial financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsley certified counselor. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 28 years. And we're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Our podcast up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, check out our website. It's moneymd.net. We have a link to the podcast out there. You can go back and listen to the historical ones. It's kind of fun to go back and listen to the ones during the pandemic. I mean, that was a really yeah. unique time and, um, you know, if you would have followed our advice back then, you would be way ahead right now. And uh, for sure, you know, obviously no one knows what markets are going to do, but uh, we do have the historical podcast. We also have some really good tools. If you've never been to the website, go check it out. Um, we have calculators and we have forms and articles and just a lot of really good information out there. And uh, also have a Money MD page on Facebook. So we put a prescription of the week out there every week. Right, right. And you can link to us there off the website, moneymd.net. You can uh, send us your questions and we'll talk about those right here on the show. But we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, Steve, I think most people would agree with this that have had children. But, you know, the cost of raising a child is is extremely expensive. Uh, 13000 per year is the average 
So, you know, going out to age 18, it's all, it's over 200,000, 233,000. And it's yeah. split into to different categories, obviously childbirth. Uh, you have food, little, little kiddos eat. Yeah, a bit. food's 233 a month. So uh, about a, about 20% of that is food. Um, so, yeah. yeah, that's a lot. And that's, you know, I, I, I just remember when my kids were teenagers, they were probably, you know, it felt like it was double that. They ate all the time. But you've got, you know, child care and education costs, transportation costs. And I will say, you know, as you're, as you're planning for family, you know, uh, you know, the cost is a piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, that's not necessarily the, the most important piece, but it is something to realize, right? As you get into, right. do we want two kids or, or, or six? Um, you know, six kids is going to be a lot more expensive than two. Yeah, like eleven eleven hundred dollars per per kid, you know, per year, uh, per month. Per month, Per yeah. month, $1,100 per month. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, so, yeah, there's all those things. About a third of that is housing. So if you already have a big house, you know, maybe you don't add that much mm-hmm. at, at quite as much but still a lot of money for those children they're, they're worth it over time but uh <laughs> <laughs> and then they get into college and that's as equally as expensive yeah this does not include education no. for college no. <clears throat> for sure so very good good fact of the week and that leads up here to our first topic and that is um how many stocks actually beat the indexes. Yeah, so we, we got this from Morningstar, a gentleman named John Reckenthaler. And um, Morningstar has great um, information. It's not political. It's based on data and statistics and history. And uh, that's one of the examples here. And and so the, the question is, is how many stocks actually beat the indexes? And in 2018, the Journal of Financial Economics published a, a paper titled, Do Stocks Outperform Treasury bond Bills? Yeah, and it seemed like this absurd question, like, of course they do. You know, everybody knows stocks outperform treasury bills, but, you know, the twist was, there was a twist in that question, and it was a great question when you dig into the details. And this guy that wrote this, Arizona State's Henrik uh, Bessenbinder, his answer to that, surprisingly, was yes and no. Right. right. I mean, that's, right. that's the twist. And so, yes, on average, but not every single stock. So, well, not even the majority. That's right. That's right. So, of course, the U.S. stock market indexes um, have outgained cash. I mean, if you look at the Vanguard 500, um, you know, index, you could see that. But those gains are owned by a relatively few number of winners. Right. That's the big takeaway here. That's- small number of stocks give you the returns i'll go ahead and give you the answer <laughs> yeah and it's and it's i think it's fun to, to it's interesting that so few investors understand that point because yep. we meet with hundreds of people every year you know and and we sit down with them and, and a lot of times they're coming in talking about you know stocks they own or buying and they just don't understand the odds are really stacked against them yeah so this paper received renewed attention um in 2021 there was a scottish firm that cited this research and it justified, it was justifying this investment approach. And then the Financial Times came in and, and accused the author, uh, author of overstating the case for a dramatic effect. And so, um, you know, this, this gentleman, John Reckenthaler, basically goes through and says, hey, he's sticking to the facts. Um, you know, he's seen this work before. This guy, Reckenthaler, has been in the industry for 30 or 40 years. Right. And what he sees is that most equities have returned less than the Treasury bills. Um, you know, based on the history. So we're going to dive into some of the details associated with this. And uh, I think you'll find it pretty um, insightful. Yeah, it is. Because when you dig into the details here, I mean, the conclusion is most stocks really don't outperform treasury bills. And treasury bills have returned almost nothing over the past 10 years. But yeah, what they did was, to answer this question, they evaluated the results of stocks from publicly traded companies 
over the most recent decade from 2011 to through 2020. And, um, you know, the results are very interesting, John. Um, You know, basically what they found was that the numbers clearly support his argument um, that although it was a great decade overall, um, the Morningstar U.S. stock index returned like 13.9% yeah. over the past decade. It's an amazing, great decade for stocks in general. Um, only 42% of individual stocks finished positive. Only 42. Only 42%. So that means the in majority a, didn't do it. In a banner decade. A banner decade. Only 42%. So, you know, nearly as many, 36%. Had losses over ten years, so over a third had losses, and then another twenty-two percent. This is the number that really baffled me that I didn't realize. Twenty-two percent vanished, mm-hmm. just disappeared, you know. And and basically, he didn't didn't dig too far into it, but their the previous research suggests that about half of those were merged over into another stock and probably did okay, but the other half were delisted. I mean, just went to zero, yeah, gone. You know, so it just shows you, wow, I mean, yeah, the majority of stocks don't beat T-bills. So if you're just buying individual stocks, if you buy like five stocks, 10 stocks, odds are against you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the data even gets when you separate it, um, you know, we're going to we're gonna break that down a little bit further between large stocks and small stocks. And, and large stocks had a remarkable uh, decade. decade. Small they stocks did. underperformed, but, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, ExxonMobil, they're not average companies, and and although you know he he didn't dwell on the uh, the point in his paper, it did show that that large companies during this decade were more reliable than than smaller rivals. So the the major firms were not only likelier to survive, but also likelier to have profit. So when you look at large stocks, um, about twenty three percent of them either didn't uh, beat the market or they they went away. And when you start looking at small stocks, um, that was closer to 70%. So there was a difference that what they saw between large and small. But Steve, we know from history, small stocks are more volatile, but they've also given a higher rate of return. So there's That's a right. reason why there's a higher return is they are riskier Absolutely. historically. So, you know, the larger companies were more reliable. Um, you know, so we, you know, if you split this into different segments and so forth, you can start gleaning some information, but you know, the, the, the big takeaway so far in this article was, you know, only 42% of stocks beat, you know, the, the, the averages, um, in a banner decade. So you can't, the aver- it's, it's against you. If you were invested in the right. S and P right, 500 right. index, you know, 13.9%. Right. And it's because you have a handful of companies. We've looked at studies that go back 25 years before, and in, in that study, it said basically all the positive return over that entire time was accounted for, was, was basically consumed by 19% of the stocks. Mm-hmm. In other words, they made all the positive return and everything else was negative or even, you know, break even. So it was it's pretty interesting when you start looking at those kind of numbers. Yep, yep. So another way of measuring the size difference is to calculate how many stocks recorded the gains and beat the treasury bills. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, and, and, uh, well, actually, how many beat their benchmarks? Yeah, the you benchmarks, know? right. Right, like the indexes, like the U.S., uh, uh, the Morningstar U.S. government corporate bond index, um, you know, is another way to measure the results. And once again, the disparity between the size um, is apparent, um, you know, in a randomly chosen company from the biggest 1,000 
stocks listed was more than twice as likely to survive the period and surpass the index than was a stock pick from the next 4,000. So mid caps, small caps, um, were a lot less likely to to outperform the index. But again, that was just one decade, and it was a terrible decade for small stocks, but a great decade for large stocks. So I think when you look longer term, it's probably not that big a disparity. Yeah, you're right. But but here the takeaway on this this whole article is four out of five large U.S. stocks trailed the benchmark. Right. So there was there were twenty percent that actually outperformed. If you would have bought an index fund, twenty percent outperformed that. Eighty percent underperformed that. That's exactly. I right. mean, that's that's and so the odds are, are against you when you're doing individual stocks. I mean, way against you. If you don't get your share of those few companies that double, triple, quadruple, you know, then you've lost. Yeah. Because if you don't get there's there's probably five percent of stocks. I'm just speculating here, but it's the numbers are extremely small that make up a lot of the positive results. And so if you're not diversified, if you don't own thousands of stocks in your portfolio, you're probably going to underperform. Yeah. And so his his boldest claim, this gentleman, Besson Binder's boldest claim was that 4% of the U.S. stock market companies accounted for its entire gain. So you saw 19%. He's saying 4%. So, you know, that's why we, and you know, folks like Dave Ramsey recommend mutual funds, because if you own the indexes, um, you're going to have um, some of those losers, but you're also going to have the big, big, big winners like the Apples and the Amazons in there. Right. And you don't have to pick. You don't have right. to pick them. And you can have a plan that is, you know, you match it up with the rate of return that we've seen historically. And obviously past performance doesn't guarantee future results. But looking back at history, mutual funds have been a great way to invest. And the odds are in your favor when you do mutual funds versus stocks. Absolutely. Yeah. Particularly funds that are really broadly diversified, you know, um, because individual stocks are just um, you're, you're just kind of you're, you're kind of speculating. And it's impossible to time those companies, too, that do extraordinarily well. I know, you know, people all, you know, talk about the big winner they had, you know, GameStop or something that they yeah. timed right. But, you know, that's that's not the norm. The norm is you, you got to make too many right decisions to try to time it. You got to know when to buy, when to sell, and, you know, to make those two decisions quickly and at the right time is very, very difficult. Usually your emotions work against you and you lose, so you're much better off diversifying. But, uh, yeah, that's a great, really eye-opening study. Yeah, it really is. I like it. All right. Well, that brings us up here to the question of the week. Yeah, we're getting this question a lot, and we just did a segment a couple of weeks ago. So if you're if you're listening to this and you want to go back and listen to the segment, we kind of dive into it. But question is, is I hear Biden's raising taxes. What what should I do? Well, yeah, good question. Well, <laughs> the good que- the good answer here, uh, the good news about this is they're only talking about raising taxes on people making over four hundred thousand dollars. Right. Right. So. You know, for the most part, if you're making less than four hundred thousand dollars, you probably don't need to worry about it. Yes. You know, it's just and that takes out, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of people. I think I think the stepped up basis, there's one of them that I think is gonna impact everyone, if I understand correctly. And so when someone passes away the estate tax issue. Yeah. If they go through with that. I it's yet to be seen if that's really gonna happen. But yeah, if they did away with this step up, then estate taxes become an issue, but not income taxes, not yeah. while you're live. It's yeah. more of a long-term but thing. But if you're making for over $400,000 and you're listening to us, I mean, you can do um, 
contributions this year, donor advised funds. You can maybe you could possibly do some Roth conversions. You, you know, could, you, you got, could realize gains. You, you know, if you're, gains, if you're yeah. worried about it, um, you know, uh, uh, give to a charitable donor advised fund, as John mentioned. You know, um, so there are a few things you can do. You can think about, but but we don't know yet. I would I would probably wait till later in the year when we know more about how this is going to shake out. Right. Right. A um, little early yet to be speculating on exactly what's going to happen with until um, it's in print with some kind of tax changes. But I would say, yeah, about September we're going to start knowing, and you still got a couple few couple months, months there to, yep. to do something. So, all right, good question, and that leads up here to our next topic, and that is switching states to save taxes. Um, yeah, this is a, a re- very recent article out of Bottom Line Personal. And John, I'd be lying if I said I had never contemplated the idea of retiring to one of the income tax-free states someday. Yeah, we had with um, a lot of golf courses. Around, yeah, a lot right? of golf. That's definitely a mandatory yep, yep. for me. But um, but yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be nice though to draw your retirement income without ever having to deal with state income taxes mm-hmm. or even thinking about yeah. it? Um, yeah, I mean, so think you know maybe Texas, Florida, the na- to name a couple obvious choices. Um, in recent years, many high-profile billionaires have been changing their official residency from California, New Jersey, New York, um, to places like Florida and Texas, um, you know, like Phil Mickelson, Elon Musk, um, you know, and even President Donald Trump, you know, moved to Florida. Um, but the main draw isn't the warm temperatures, you know, it's low taxes. I mean, Florida is one of the states that has no state income tax or estate tax and um, at the state level in, you know, relatively modest property taxes compared to some of the northern states. So, I mean, billionaires, though, aren't the only ones kind of seeking to escape high taxes, especially since the latest, you know, tax law took effect back a few years ago, 2018, um, that capped the federal deduction for state and local income tax payments to $10,000, the SALT deductions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, got capped at ten thousand dollars. So people making a lot of money, you know, that was a painful thing. That means that that basically meant it was essentially making their state income taxes go up because they didn't get a federal deduction for those taxes. Um, in addition to the northern eastern states that lost billionaires, other high tax states include California, Maryland, um, Minnesota. And they're seeing a bleed of wealthy residents to these tax free states over time. Yeah, and unfortunately, some people who flee to to low tax states, they find that the high tax states that they're trying to leave, they're hoping to escape. Uh, they're reluctant to let them say goodbye, and so these states are actually aggressively auditing the taxpayers who relocate, and they're hoping to prove that they have not completely severed their connection to a former home state, and they still owe taxes. So if you've ever contemplated a a similar move, it's a good idea to know some of the hurdles and rules required to make this type of move, you know, a real option. So we're going to kind of dive into some of the details. And and the rules regarding who owes state taxes can be complex. Um, There's really two separate tests that come into play. If you fail either one of them, uh, your former home state is likely to uh, demand tax payments. So you got to be prepared. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so they're looking harder at these moves. So if you've ever contemplated this, you want to make sure you dot all your I's and cross all your T's. Um, the first test is the domicile test, um, which is residency test, right? Um, to to no longer uh, officially reside in a state, you've got to change your domicile, your residency, permanently, um, your primary home to an out-of-state location. 
And this might be clear cut if you sell your house in an old state and you buy or rent a new house in the new state and you move yourself and all your possessions there, um, you know, then that's pretty obvious. Um, but what if you own two or rent homes in two states? That's what I see most people doing, John, whenever I have clients that move is they tend to keep the old house, right? Um, or and they might come back and they might do six months here, six mm-hmm. months there. Um but an auditor would likely consider the five following factors when determining which is your actual domicile, your true residency. First one's the homes. The home that's bigger, that's better, it's more valuable, is likely to be considered your true residence. Um, minor differences in size or value might not be considered the definitive, but you know, expect problems if you're claiming you're living in Florida and you have a one-bedroom condo there versus a 35 hundred square foot house in Connecticut or mm-hmm. here in Georgia, right? Um, and then the other test, the, the other factor is your active business interest. You know, it would be more difficult to convince the auditors that you truly moved away if you still own or work for a company in your former state. So, John, if you're getting any ideas of moving to Florida <laughs> and still, you know, working here, it's not going to work. Not going to work. Yeah. Not going to yeah. work, buddy. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, so be ready to supply a copy of your letter of resignation, uh, paperwork proving that you sold, closed, or moved your business. You know, um, you know, it's possible to relocate and work remotely, of course, in today's world um, for a former employer, employer. But, you know, be warned. I mean, arrangements like that, they do attract attention from auditors. So you got to be cautious about returning to the state to visit the office. Yeah, another factor they look at in this domicile test is your time. And and you might have heard that spending less than 183 days in a state proves that you don't live there. And there's some truth to that, but that's not the whole story. So you may be asked to prove your, your lifestyle changed significantly and that you spend more time in your new state than the former one. So just as an example, let's say a, a New Jersey man and his family moves to Florida, but still spends 180 days in New Jersey. So the auditor may argue that uh, New Jersey remains his uh, true domicile if he spends just 170 days in Florida with the remaining days spent vacationing somewhere else. So it really should be beyond question where you spend your time and making sure that it's changed substantially when you moved. And, and you should certainly spend more days in the state that you're claiming uh, as your new home than you do anywhere else. So that's an interesting example that even though it's lower than 183 days, it's still more than what they stayed in Florida because they vacationed. Right. right. That's right. You go vacation in somewhere else. And so that is a factor. And uh, yeah, the burden's going to be on you, unfortunately, to prove how many days you spend in each state. So you got to document it. Um, you got to save receipts, credit card statements, cell phone records that establish where you were on many of the days of the year as possible. Keep a diary or a calendar to help you here too. Um, you know, so especially those first few years that you move, you really need to try to document everything. But, you know, only if it's completely accurate, too. Um, you know, if you expect to take one trip a week and, you know, enter this on your calendar, but that trip is canceled and you forget to remove it from the calendar, this incorrect listing could later be seen as evidence that the entire calendar can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. So you got to be real careful that your documentation is accurate because, you know, if they audit you, they'll certainly try to dig into that. And then also your possessions are important, too. You know, the location of the items nearest and dearest to your heart could be a major role in establishing where your domicile is. So, yes, if I move to Florida, I am taking my golf clubs with me, John. That's right. <laughs> you yeah, go take not, your... If I leave them here, they would have a good argument. You're going to take your pet? 
<laughs> Your cats? My cat. I will. Of course I'll okay, take KJ. Just making sure. No. Of course I would. What are you talking about? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, your pets, your uh, family, photo albums, um, you know, everything that's important to you, you know, you need to take it with you. If you hire or rent a moving van to relocate at least some of the items from your old state to your new one, um, even if you can afford to, you know, buy all new stuff in your new, <clears throat> in your second, in your, your new home state, um, you need to take stuff with you. As good documentation. If you have a safety deposit box in your old state, close it, rent a new one in the new state. Yeah, another one they look at is your family. I mean, uh, where your spouse and minor children spend most of their time can be used as evidence of your your true domicile. Um, so, you know, change your driver's license, bank accounts, primary physician, voter registration, car registration, you know, passports, you know, insurance policy addresses. Uh, sell the municipal bonds issued in the prior state. That's that's a great that's um, a that's a small yeah. detail in it yeah, yeah that's a good detail though so so failing to get rid of them could be used as evidence that you really haven't moved so auditors sometimes even consider where people get their teeth cleaned uh, and which airports they fly through so you know look at pets where they get annual checkups so they they do a deep dive I mean you know and I'm sure they have the resources and the authority to go and and you know go audit your financial records right oh I mean, yeah that's gonna, that's gonna tell the story. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> and don't claim residence rates for anything in your former state. I mean, for instance, you know, they had an example where a man ended up with a big New York state tax bill because when he returned from his former home state uh, to his former home state, he paid a residence rate for a fishing license. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they caught him busted. there. That's right. And also beware of the January 5th, 1st, uh, move date trap. You know, people who switch dates often claim that they relocated on January 1st to avoid, you know, filing partial tax returns in two states. Well, a January 1st move is a huge red flag to auditors because you don't actually move on January 1st. Everybody knows that. <clears throat> so, you know, you got to pick more of a random date. <laughs> you know, it can't be so convenient that it's January 1st that you move. Um, so if it, you know, they'll, they'll definitely look at that if you start picking that date and you don't file a partial tax return. Um, and then there's the residency test. You know, even if you prove that your domicile is now in the new state, your former state may insist that you're still a resident. If you spend more than a certain number of days there during the year. Um, and you know, they also, um, uh, in different states have different limits, by the way, Oregon has 200 days you have mm. to spend there in a year. So you got to make sure you really understand the number of days that are required in your 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 new state and your previous state before you you do that. Yeah, so you might legally have a permanent residence in your former state, even if you don't own a house or rent an apartment there. So you think about a relative's home or a home owned by your employer that you stay in frequently might be considered your permanent residence, particularly if you have a you know key to the property um, and the the stuff there. So this is especially. You know, becomes a problem if you might spend more than 183 d days in that state. So the safest way to avoid being deemed, you know, to have a residence in that state is to vary where you stay when you're there. So don't stay at one one location. Yeah, just Airbnb at different yeah. places for a month or something if you're really trying to come back for a long period of time. Um, yeah, and partial days count as full days. You know, if you arrive in the state at 1159, they say that day counts towards your total. Wow. So, yeah, they're re really picky here if they, they audit you. So there are a few exceptions. They vary by states. And like in North New York, you can travel through the state on interstate, flying and out of airports without it counting as a day. <laughs> but if you even stop in for a meal in New York restaurant on the way, 
than than other than the You're airport there. that counts as a day. So just goes to show you how picky they get on on these things. Um, you really got to do your homework. Bottom line is. I mean, if you're going to move to a new state um, and claim residence there for tax purposes, you need to really move. You know, I mean, faking it is just a dangerous game. Um, you know, I mean, so just just really do the move if you're going to do the move and, you know, work in another state. And I know people that have done that. And, um, you know, if they really move, they don't have a problem. But, you know, if you move part-time and you, you still try to have a, a nice house in another state in your old state um they're probably going to come questioning that yep they really are so interesting topic i know it doesn't apply to a lot of people but something to keep in your back of your mind mm-hmm. when you start yep. contemplating that move to florida all right and that brings us up to our final thing here and that is the prescription of the week yeah so we're um, big believers in diversification obviously dave ramsey and his organization are as well and so we, we, we see that. I mean, if you look at, you know, the last couple of years, growth stocks have been all the rage and people are piling into large U.S. growth stocks and they haven't done so well this year. There's, they're, they've they've right. retreated a little bit in some other asset classes. Small value has done phenomenal. And so we recommend making sure you're properly diversified. One asset class that's being completely ignored is international. And you know, international has underperformed for a number of years, but if you go back and look at history, um, the international outperforms U.S. about half the time, about 50% of the time. So don't get caught in the trap of, of just all U.S. and all large. Make sure you're diversified. If It's riskier right. to be really narrowly invested versus broadly diversified. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think 20 to 30% of your stock allocation, your equity allocation, should probably be in internationals, yep. you know, yep. in that range, 20 to 30% of it. Um, and eventually the wind's going to change and it's going to do really well, you know, compared to the U S and you're going to wish you had some in it. If you're not, if you're not diversified in that already. So definitely make sure you're diversified and international in U S and, um, just be patient, you know, it will, it will have its day. So Good prescription of the week. And that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net, and uh, link to us there. You can send us your questions or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706 739 0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. 